Hi, folks, and welcome to The Blue Room. Today, we interrupt our regular season with a bonus episode for you. Shonda Ja is someone I've known through various professional networks for a while, and I am also an avid reader of Shonda's wonderful Thursday newsletter called Joy in Social Justice. I love their work and wanted you to get to know Shonda as well and hear about their exciting new book called Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. We talk about Shonda's approach to anti-racism and anti-oppression work, how we find hope in the struggle, and the vital work of getting in touch with the stories of our ancestors, whether familial, cultural, or spiritual ancestors, so that we can be good ancestors for future generations. Can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Shonda Ja, they, them, is an anti-oppression consultant who especially loves helping organizations get diversity, equity, and inclusion teams off the ground. Shonda is the founder and former executive director of the Oakland Peace Center, a collective of 40 organizations working to create equity, access, and dignity as the means of creating peace in Oakland and the Bay Area. An ordained pastor with a master's in public policy, Shonda is comfortable in the pulpit, on the picket line, or hanging out with friends and friends-to-be over a good cup of tea and a good story. Sounds great to me. And as I mentioned, Shonda's fifth book is with Chalice Press, and it's called Rebels, Despots, and Saints. It was just released recently. Let's get to the conversation. I would love to hear about the the work that you do, the anti-oppression, diversity, equity. So just tell me, tell me what's keeping you busy these days. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I think I have this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion being this very corporate thing, right? The thing that like companies do so they don't get in trouble. And so they can say they've done it. And so it's really funny to find myself in this field. And at first I thought I was unusual in that I bring an anti-oppression lens, which means I think we need to deal with systemic justice issues uh, and not just interpersonal behaviors. And it turns out there are a fair number of people, not a majority, there's still tons of people who are happy to do the corporate. We're going to do a training so you can check the box off. But There's actually a number of folks I know who come out of organizing, who come out of a deep commitment to kind of visionary justice, who are doing this work, maybe not always in corporate spaces, but with nonprofits and with faith organizations. So I am not actually unique in that I come out of community organizing and the social justice movement and really bring that and the anti-racism work that I did for 20 years in my denomination into the work I do with nonprofits, institutions of higher education, religious institutions, and occasionally a tech company or two who are willing to be like, we know that you might critique capitalism a little, and obviously we're not going to go down that road with you, but we think it's okay to talk in big, you know, systemic terms. There's not a ton of those out there, but there are a couple. So that's really what keeps me busy working with organizations that are trying to become anti-oppressive, anti-racist, anti-ableist, all of the, all of the different systemic oppressions trying to take those on. Can you give me a sense of what some of that work looks like? I mean, I imagine that it's, it's not a program. It's not a three-step process. I mean, I've, I've been reading your work and I love your, I I love Thursdays because Shonda's (laughs) newsletter comes to me (laughs) 
And I'm like, yay. I'll put a plug in that and put it in the show notes because I hope people will subscribe. Um, But so I I know it's not something else else in a box that you just present to people, but what are some kinds of things that people and and institutions and organizations do to try to work on anti-oppression? So I think that's a little bit of different framing than than a lot of us. Absolutely. So what I love to do, like my favorite thing to do is if there's an organization that is willing to invest in building a team, an anti-oppression team, a DEI team, I don't care what they call it. Sometimes it's a Jedi team, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Or sometimes it's a, gosh, I worked with one organization where it was justice, belonging, and access. So there's all sorts of words for it. And I don't worry too much which words we're using so much as I love to work with a team over like six months and give them the tools to be community organizers within their own organization. I don't usually lead with that because I think that might be a little bit terrifying because a lot of the folks I work with would never dream of thinking of themselves as community organizers. And I get that. I think we have this idea of what a community organizer is, but really all a community organizer is, is somebody who has the skills to cultivate change within their organization by working through the people within that organization. That's all community organizing is. And so if I get to work with a team over six months, we get to work on strategy. We get to work on what is the shared language and shared analysis we're working out of so we can build on that. I'm struck by how often we use terms and we don't actually define them. And it can be really helpful to spend a little time saying, what do we mean when we say racism? What does ableism look like? What is ageism and how does it show up in the workplace to actually clarify what those things are and what they're not? And then to ask the question, so what would it look like if our organization had eliminated that thing? And then how do we back up and figure out how to get there? So you really are helping people cast a vision for what that would look like and then kind of, and then getting super practical about how to implement it. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people think they're going to hire me to do trainings, but trainings often come a ways into my work with an organization. Like I've been working with a large congregation for five months. And last week was when I did a congregational training because the team had worked towards the place where they knew who to invite. They knew what content would be helpful and what wouldn't. And they could also utilize what came out of that training. You know, there were 50 people who were like, oh, we get this. We can see our role in it. And now that team gets to follow up with them and say, oh, you're involved in this ministry and you said you wanted to bring anti-racism into it. So let's brainstorm together how to implement that. And that means the team doesn't have to be the anti-racism for the church. They get to support the anti-racism across the life of the church. That's the dream for me. Hmm. I love that model. That's that's exciting and really cool. I, it's fun. I'm curious how you've kind of evolved your way into the current book that's out now and and how that came to be. What is its origin story, I guess? Oh, uh, yay. So... It's funny because I think a lot of writers pour their whole selves into their first book. And then the other ones are iterative, right? Brene Brown is, all of her books are the same book. They're all lovely, but they're all the same book. I think I spent my whole life getting ready for this book. And so I didn't realize, because I always thought all five of my, including this one, that they were all very disconnected. And a friend of mine said, actually, 
you were building the platform to get us here. My first book was on the history of uh, people of color in my denomination. So kind of the historical framework of the role of people of color in an institutional setting. The second book was kind of stories about people of color and white people from diverse backgrounds and how they engage systemic racism and how that connects to stories in the Bible that can give us tools to also be a part of building what Dr. King called beloved community. The third book was a series of case studies of regular people who affected community change. The fourth book was a book of devotions written as if they were from God. And it was really primarily for activists and progressive spiritual folks and people of color who don't tend to be who devotionals are written for and who are pouring themselves out and deserve to get poured into, which was why I wrote that one. So they all seemed very disconnected to me, but my friend was like, actually, that was forming an arc. Um, You were giving us the context, you were introducing, you were humanizing it, you were giving us tools to affect change, you were giving us solace and encouragement. And this book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free, it's definitely my love letter to activists and organizers, but it really is about how to make sure we can be sustained for a lifetime of working for justice and how we can do that in ways that are spiritually grounded and in ways that remind us we're not alone in the work. That's where ancestors show up for me. Can you give an example or or tell me, uh, uh, paint a picture for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. What does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So in the most basic of terms, I think Life is incredibly hard. Life is overwhelming. And you can pick the justice issue that either affects you directly or that you're called to respond to just because you have deep empathy. So for for me, one of those issues would be the way kids are getting treated in the immigration system. And it is easy to become despondent. There's lots of bad news. There are lots of barriers. It is hard work. It is it can be overwhelming. And we already have tools like we have organizations that are doing good work that we can partner with. There are amazing border ministries that a lot of churches do. There's organizations like Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity that is really doing work to support people in detention centers as well as changing policies. There's all sorts of great contemporary resources, but there's also something about knowing the stories of when I was writing my first book, I got to hear the story of Kay Kokobun, who was a Japanese-American pastor whose father had been a pastor on the border. A lot of people don't realize that the first immigration struggles in this country were actually about Japanese gardeners and farm workers being perceived as a threat to the jobs of good, hardworking American farmers. And so Everything the first- old is new again. Right. And so the first laws on the Mexican border weren't to keep Mexicans out. It was to keep Japanese people out uh, because they were a threat to good, hardworking American workers. For me to know that Kay Kokobun, who lived through Japanese internment and then came back to pastor a multicultural church in a denomination that thought multicultural churches were great, but they should only be pastored by white people, to know that Kay existed and is kind of a hero of mine as an Asian American, but that his father's ministry was on the border with Mexico. 
and that he ministered to Japanese and Mexican migrant farm workers. And to know that that ministry was going on on the border and that he was pushing against border injustices as a pastor and that his son went on to do such a model of ministry and that I'm an inheritor of that legacy, that makes it a lot easier to show up for the work I'm called to because I know it's been done before. I know actually it's been done successfully before. I know people who worked very hard and dedicated themselves in ways no one's asking me to do so that it's easier for me to do because now we have infrastructure. I think there's something about knowing those stories that reminds me, not just that there are people around me right now, but that I'm an inheritor of a legacy, that there are people who came before me who have been taking on these issues, fighting for justice, and that I get to carry on their legacy. Mm. That's one of the examples for me. I I love, I mean, it's, we hear often the kind of idea that we are part of a larger arc, you know, of, of this work and to put it in such personal and personable ways of with actual people. It's just an exciting lens, I think, through which we can view this work. When you were putting the book together, how did you decide what stories to include? How did you do that process of culling and and gathering and, and all of that work? You know, it's funny because the first iteration of this book, I really had a very clear sense of what I was going to do, you know, and I had this kind of naive 99% attitude about ancestors. And, you know, the 99% is that slogan from Occupy Wall Street that 99% of us are actually in the same boat. Uh, It's just the 1% who hold the vast majority of the wealth. I had kind of a 99% philosophy about ancestors. The vast majority of us, our ancestors were more oppressed than oppressor. And if we could tap into the stories of those ancestors, it would be so liberative. And, you know, I think there's a lot that goes on in justice-seeking communities of color that tells those stories in really good ways. And I think that's where my framework was coming from. First conversation I had with uh, a white friend about it, she was like, that's great, but white people don't have those stories. And I was like, no, white people do have those stories because you have the stories of the mine workers in Kentucky who fought for justice. You have the stories of the folks in Chicago who fought for the Haymarket riot uh, where Mm -hmm. people were fighting for, for justice and risked their lives so that people could have an eight-hour workday. You have the indentured servants in Bacon's Rebellion who joined in solidarity with Black enslaved people to fight against the injustices of the plantation owners. And she was like, yeah, but those are all class-based. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, that's not going to land well. And I was like, I think that's part of the work is to actually claim that narrative. So I still thought I was on the right track. This was still very much the 99% narrative. The first workshop I hosted on this subject, I was at a conference that I was keynoting. They let me do a workshop on anything I wanted to. So I literally advertised the workshop as, I don't have the answers, but let's talk about ancestors. And about 20, 25 people showed up, God bless them. And when I asked them why they were there, like a third of them said, because I had ancestors who were enslavers. And I don't know what to do with that legacy. And this is when I realized how naive my 99% narrative had been. And as I went further in, I realized actually most of us who are people of color also have more complicated stories, right? I, you know, I have lots of stories as 
as a South Asian around the impacts of colonialism. My family was from a community that experienced hundreds of famines over the course of the British Empire, all of which were created by the British Empire. We were from a small village, but my father was a Brahmin. So within the context of India, they were very poor. They were struggling. They were from a community that very few people got out of, but they probably got out because while they didn't have very much other social leverage, they were Brahmins. And that just makes life a little bit easier. Doesn't mean they were bad. Doesn't mean they didn't struggle in the same way that poor white folks definitely struggle because classism is real and lack of opportunity is real. But it's a different struggle than poor black people. So I ended up having to confront some of those stories for myself. And it turns out that when I started getting to tell and listen to whole stories, I actually felt a little more balanced. The people who came before me, I have things to learn from their mistakes as well as their gifts. And when I make mistakes, those are things that, you know, I have context for in a different way now. So it turns out that the good stories and the hard ones are both really important and end up contributing to my ability to cast a different vision for the future. So I got together a couple of wisdom circles, one white people's wisdom circle, one people of color's wisdom circle. And we just kind of talked through what things were sitting on our hearts regarding our journeys with ancestors. And both of those circles were magical and had a lot to do with shaping the content of the book. But largely it was conversations I had with people over the course of those three or four years who would say, yeah, I've been reading about epigenetics, that that idea that intergenerational trauma is a thing that is actually encoded in our DNA. What does that have to do with ancestors? Or, yeah, I'm a mutt. I don't have ancestors. Or my family was stolen from Africa. We don't have ancestors beyond a certain point. All of those questions and curiosities, particularly one I remember several of my colleagues who were either African-American or Asian-American and also Christian who said, oh my gosh, thank you. I really need resources on how to connect with ancestors because for so many years, I was told that connecting with ancestors was anti-Christian. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I've lost these connections. That was a story I came across multiple times of oh, I've been told I'm not allowed, that it's heretical, right? And so for people to get the gift back of realizing, oh, that was a story of colonialism. That wasn't a story of Christianity. That when we talk about the great cloud of witnesses, those are ancestors. When we talk about the saints, those are ancestors. What a gift to get them back, including the biblical ones. I'm remembering a conversation I had. It was a Facebook conversation. So, you know, you have to take everything with, you know, exactly what I'm talking yes. about when I talk about a Facebook conversation, but there was a, a, a thread. Um, and we were talking about the legacy of slavery in this country and a family member of mine, kind of an extended family member chimed in and said, yeah, well, I mean, my family is like Ellis Island Americans. I mean, one of my one of my ancestors came in as a young girl, Irish, you know, and worked in a quasi indentured kind of capacity, yeah. right? And and he was using that as a you know, quit your complaining, yes. like everybody's got it bad, right? And I, I I love the kind of nuanced, expansive take that you bring to this, while also not doing those kind of false equivalences, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So how would 
I don't know, what would you say to people who kind of are trying to, to come into this conversation mm-hmm. with that sort of great, we're all the same, you know, kind of leveling that, that sometimes wants to happen when we, when we talk about our legacies and our, yeah. the things we bring in through our families and our past. That's a great question because I think in some ways, I don't want to say I avoid it. I just am really clear. Each of us has our own work to do and that work's going to look different for, you know, my mother is, well, my mother's first generation immigrant, but she's Scottish. My father's first generation immigrant and Indian. I'm, you know, 1.5. I was born in Britain and we moved to the States when I was a toddler. And what's striking to me and that I really appreciate about my mother is when we visited a plantation and she said something about the horrors of that, I was like, well, take solace in the fact that, you know, your people didn't do it. And she was like, except that we did, because she knew that Scottish people, having been economically exploited by the English and who had very few opportunities, were often very likely not to be plantation owners. That was certainly not where they usually landed, but quite often were the overseers, were the people who were doling out those brutal punishments on behalf of the plantation owners because they didn't have the resources to be at the top, but they were in the position of what we would now call the barrier class, the police, the security folks, whose job is to protect the property of people who are, you know, at the top and to do that at the expense of others. So even when they didn't benefit from the system, they were keeping the system in place. I am really grateful to my mother for kind of modeling for me. They're not my people, but also they're my people because Mm -hmm. we came out of the same situations and these are the choices they made. And I benefit from the choices they made Mm -hmm. because Scottish people weren't considered white until they were, Mm -hmm. and they could opt out of cultural identification and into whiteness because of their willingness to play a role within a society that benefited white people. And so I think that that really matters. Uh, I think that's a real gift to simultaneously know the stories of resistance and, you know, and pride and cultural power that she also claims. I know what it means to be Clan Campbell. I know what it means to come from this tiny little island off the the coast of Scotland. I know what it means to be proud of who we are and to show up for each other, which is also very contemporary because the Scots have done, I think, a better job of including immigrants and refugees than the English. No shade to, I was born in England, you know, English godparents. But um, overall, the Scots in Scotland had a sense of solidarity with people who were struggling, which meant that they were more likely to be in line with the people that Margaret Thatcher hated than with Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. So to have all Mm -hmm. of those stories matters, because then I get both versions. Sometimes your poverty drives you to do horrible things for your survival. Sometimes your poverty means you understand your alliances with other people who are struggling. I get both of those stories because I could fall into either of those categories. And I think that's a richer way to navigate life if I care about how I'm showing up today and what kind of ancestor I want to be in the future rather than looking for the get out of jail free card, which doesn't do anything for a better future. That's gorgeous. I love that. I love that. 
this this series that we're in right now and yeah. the podcast is around hope. And yes. it's been fun to talk to a lot of different people. And and the first episode was really is hope. Are there ways in which hope is gets in the way of the work? Like it mm. can be a way to pacify people and sort of, you know, just get them thinking about the sweet by and by. Yep. And I mean, it's been really varied and talking to folks who are white, people of color, all across the spectrum. It, it's really, some people are like, hope is not a useful category for me. Yeah, I just want to do the work, right? Yeah. And, and not get bound to things are going to work out. What is the right moral action for me, regardless of whether it gets better? And, and I'm curious how you think about that generally with the work mm-hmm. that you do, but then also through this prism of thinking about our ancestors and their their presence with us still mm-hmm. being a good ancestor for the future how how do you think about hope you know it's interesting because i and i should acknowledge that i think that we have biological ancestors but we also have cultural and and spiritual and movement ancestors so for me i have conversations with paul robeson a whole lot Paul Robeson was this phenomenally gifted singer. Just, I could listen to him for hours. He was also a brilliant actor. He was also a brilliant athlete. He was just multi-talented and one of the smartest people ever to walk the face of this earth. And he was blacklisted in the 50s. And really his career was pretty much stripped from him. And he was thrown under the bus by people he loved and thought were in the movement with him. And... Uh, He was embraced by people who were also engaged in global struggles for freedom, particularly from the British. So he's got this rich and amazing history. And I find myself listening to him a lot. Sometimes, literally, I will occasionally go online and watch an interview with him. That dude schooled the House Un-American Activities Committee. I do not know why they didn't just walk out of the room ashamed and cancel the entire blacklist process after his speech. So sometimes literally I'll listen to him, but sometimes I'll think, you know, I'm not saying like, what would Paul Robeson do? But I do find myself in a little bit of conversation with him when I'm facing something that feels overwhelming because he faced things that were harder and cares a great deal about what's going to come for the inheritors of his legacy. And to me, that offers me some hope that I can make a difference in the same ways that all these years later, I'm still turning to him because he made such a difference. That gives me hope. I love that answer in such keeping with the work that you're doing right now, not a kind of philosophical statement about (laughs) hope and how you think about hope, but like who embodies hope for you? Right. And I think the reason I think of, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it makes me want to think about who are my hope yes. bearers, uh, right? Yes. What a what a great question for, for our listeners to think about, but go ahead. Yeah. And I think the reason I think of Paul Robeson is because he's not warm and fuzzy. Like there is nothing ethereal or ephemeral about him. It is all grounded in the people's struggle, right? And so there's something about someone like that making it that I think is very encouraging to me as well. So yeah, it doesn't just have to be the, you know, fluffy bunny butterfly type people. It can also be the people who were not messing around who can offer real encouragement and hope. Hope can be a thing with what's that thing with dirt under its fingernails. Yeah. 
yeah, sometimes when I work with groups, I'll, I'll bring in the two poems. One is the hope is the thing with yes. feathers, the perches in the soul, which is yes. beautiful. It is. But then there's a, a poem about hope being a sewer rat. That's the one I was thinking of. Yes, and, right. Exactly. exactly. The one that just will not give up and yep. is kind of scraggly. And yep. I mean, I love that yes. view of hope that yes. feels a little bit like, I mean, I, when I picture Paul Robeson and I hear his voice in my head, I see this dignity. So yes. the the carriage of what he went through with Huac and and yep. Anyway, yeah. What a what a fantastic um representative for hope for you. Well, tell me tell me quickly about uh, joy and justice because it is a highlight in my inbox each week. And how did that come about? And how did you decide? I mean, I. I subscribe to so many things. I do sure. some anti-racism facilitation with Next Church. And so I'm trying to just grab yeah. as much stuff as I can. And and your approach is, is a little different than a lot of those newsletters that come in because you do talk about joy in the struggle. How did yeah. that, how'd that come to you? You know, it's, there's two reasons. This is going to sound silly, but when I was starting, it took me six months doing this work before I realized I was a consultant. And so then I was like, crud, what do consultants do? And somebody was like, oh, well, one of these kind of business experts, you know, girl boss trainers said, well, they have newsletters and you want to send out stuff that is value add to people so that even if they never hire you, they understand you to be useful, but that puts you on their radar so that if they ever do need to hire someone, they're like, oh yeah, that person shows up in my inbox. They're pretty good. So it was a very boring technical reason at first, but because I couldn't do something just for marketing purposes, I kind of asked, what is it that I would love to put out that it does not matter to me whether I get a single piece of business from it or not? And for me, I think the thing that makes me a little unique as an anti-racism and anti-oppression consultant is I actually think that joy is a form of resistance that we cannot skip, that is really, really critical. It's part of why we do the do the work, but in the same way that I think Jesus wasn't saying we should be working towards heaven so much as we should be experiencing and creating heaven, I think that that's also true for our work. We're doing the anti-racism work so we can be in full relationships, so we can share with each other cross-culturally, so that we can benefit from each other's gifts as well as support each other without any barriers. Why not get some tastes of that along the way? And I think that's what keeps me in the work is finding the ways that it's fun and playful and inspiring, not just the, it is what we are supposed to do. And therefore we had better, you know, treat it the way that we do kale and exercise. Right. Right. Yep. Not, yep. not saying that kale can't be delicious, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I imagine when you, I mean, I do a newsletter as well. And there are yeah. weeks where I'm like, oh, what's it going to be this week? And I'm, I'm, I imagine you have those too, but, but to have a an awareness that you're coming in, not with yep. this kind of dour, you know, but to say, so it can be my escapism. Bring, right. Yeah. And, and bring a little leaven to yes. the people that receive it. It's, it's really is that. And I, I, I will definitely put the link in the show notes for people to connect with that. It's good food for thought and, and just a, a wonderful thing to ingest each week. So my favorite um, well, is the thank weeks you that so I send much. out video links yeah. to yes. like to songs and people write back and they're like, Oh my gosh, that song got me through yesterday. I love that. Yeah. yeah it's so it's fun. The sim- it's so sometimes it's those simple things and yeah. just, just all you need is that little thing that's yeah. going to get you through. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Shonda. This was a real joy to talk with you and um, I wish you all the best and hope that lots and lots of people will read the book and get in touch with their ancestors, spiritual, oh. cultural, movement ancestors, and, and all the rest. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us in the Blue Room today and huge thanks to Shonda Jha. Connect with them at the website shondajah.com, which is S-A-N-D-H-Y-A-J-H-A.com. Or you can subscribe to Joy in Social Justice and brighten your inbox on Thursdays. Check our show notes for those links and even more. You can also check out my website, MarianneMcKibbenDana.net. And if you liked this podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. I'm Marianne McKibben-Dana, speaking to you from Reston, Virginia, the ancestral land of the Manahoac people. This podcast was produced and edited by Mel Dana. Thank you, as always, for listening. Steady on. Thank you.